number of the other pastors and uh, Michael Lopes, I think, has come and, and ministered God's word to you here. Uh, so I'm very thankful for the opportunity to, to be here, to uh, see uh, the place, the, the context in which you're meeting, and uh, to be encouraged by that, to have a picture in my mind as, a, as we think of you and pray for you. Uh, but most of all, to, to meet those of you that I haven't met before and uh, to have faces uh, to match the names. Uh, we do assure you that uh, your brethren in Mebane at Grace Reformed uh, care about you a lot and love you and, and care about this effort a great deal. We're very much behind you and, and for you and praying for God's blessing on this effort here in Winston-Salem. And we're eager to see what he's going to do and we're really encouraged uh, by what he's been doing so far. So I'm thankful for the opportunity again to be with you and to minister uh, God's word, to look at God's word together with you. Our text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, so I'd ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll read uh, the entire chapter. It's relatively short, just 10 verses. Follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray once more and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Father, we do look to you now the way uh, children look to uh, their father uh, for provision, for, for our needs uh, from your word. We, we ask you to come now by your spirit and feed us from uh, the good food of your word. We pray that you would meet the needs of our souls. We pray that you would encourage and strengthen our faith. We pray that you would help us to see your glory and your power in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would encourage us and strengthen us by your word today. And for any here this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, we pray that you would come as the God who saves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About six months ago, I had the opportunity of witnessing up close uh, and, and personal one of the more powerful and dramatic conversions that I had seen in a very long time. And uh, after 
rejoicing over that conversion for a time uh, and then beginning to reflect on it, it dawned on me that I personally really needed to see that happen. Again, it had been a while since I had witnessed up close uh, a dramatic, powerful conversion. And in reflecting on that, I recognized that not only was I happy for the person who was converted and, and for God being glorified in the salvation of a sinner, but I was encouraged by that. I was helped by that. And in fact, I needed that. I needed that encouragement. I needed the reminder, and I'm sad to say this about myself, but I needed the reminder that God is still saving sinners today in, in America in in 2017, uh, God is still saving sinners. And in fact, that he can do it anytime and that he can do it in any way that he pleases and that the gospel still is the power of God uh, to radically save and to radically change people. Now, it's not that I didn't believe that. I know that and I believe that in my head. But it really helped me to see it in a fresh and new way in the experience of another. And I imagine that maybe I'm not alone in in that experience, that maybe you've experienced that too, that maybe some time goes by uh, in your own walk with the Lord, and, and it's been a while since you've really seen somebody saved and transformed by the gospel and maybe you, you you realize that and you recognize that there's something happening in you that really isn't so good that maybe you begin subtly at least to uh, to to doubt that it still happens and and maybe to to think that that the the ground is so hard the people around us are so hard that there's been such a movement away from the things of God and and and, and, and belief in, in the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as a society and a culture. We've moved so far away from those things that nobody's going to be saved. Nobody wants to be saved. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody's going to respond positively to the gospel. You ever, you ever feel that way? At least subtly. You might not admit it, but you know maybe that goes on in your heart at times. And it's beneficial to see conversions if for no other reason than to remind us that God still saves and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We need that. Well, this morning I'd like us to look at what I consider to be one of the most dramatic testimonies in the Bible of how the gospel changes people's lives. And in doing so, I hope that it's maybe a fresh encouragement to you, a fresh reminder of those things that I've been talking about that God saves, that the gospel changes people's lives. This testimony that we want to consider happened in the very unlikely context of the the very pagan and cosmopolitan city of Thessalonica in the first century. Thessalonica was a large, major, important city uh, in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of the region called Macedonia. Uh, it was located uh, on the Ignatian Way, that uh, kind of a Roman superhighway, paved road that ran west to east across 
uh, what is now Eastern Europe. So Thessalonica was right in the middle of that important uh, road, and therefore it, it, it led to Thessalonica being a major center for uh, commerce and trade and connected it really to the important pl- places of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a city very much steeped in Greco-Roman uh, paganism and culture and, and living, and uh, uh, you, can, you can imagine what, what that means practically. Uh, in the lives of the citizens of Thessalonica. And that's what the city was like. But when Paul, the apostle, came to Thessalonica, the gospel came to that city. Again, uh, a place we might not expect much to happen. Uh, We might not expect much fruit. We may not expect a church to be born. But but when Paul came, the gospel came. And it came in power. And when the gospel came, change came. Conversion came to individual lives. Those who previously did not know Christ. Now, Paul didn't stay very long in Thessalonica. We know he was at least there for three consecutive Sabbaths in which he preached the gospel in the synagogue. I have... Uh, I, I tend to think that he stayed there a little bit longer than that just because of, uh, of all that happened there and the strength of that church by the time he writes this letter. Uh, he, he perhaps stayed a little bit longer than three Sabbaths, but, but he didn't stay long because, as was so often the case in his experience, uh, trouble arose there in that city. And uh, basically, uh, uh, troublemakers stirred up the city against them. They went looking for them. They didn't find them. But uh, that very night, when the trouble occurred, the brethren sent Paul and his companions out of the city. Uh, They went on from there to Berea and then to Athens. And there, Paul's pastoral heart kicked in. Uh, He hated that he had to leave that city so quickly. He was worried about them. He was concerned for them. He wanted to know how they were doing. And so he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to to see how they were and to continue to establish them in the faith. After a time, Timothy joins back up with Paul in Corinth and gives him a report on on the, the brethren in Thessalonica, on the church there. And I believe it's from there that Paul writes this letter back to the church of Thessalonica. So not long after he had left, he receives this report, he writes this letter. And in this opening chapter of his first letter to them, Paul is is aiming to build their confidence, to build their assurance that what happened to them was real. And, and, and that they, they really did experience God and the power of God in the gospel and that their lives it wasn't just some psychological thing that the ploy that Paul had used on them Uh, it wasn't just some cultural thing but they really had experienced conversion and the power of God in the gospel and he seeks to encourage them in this way by reminding them in the opening chapter how the gospel came to them and how the gospel changed them. And those will be our two headings as we consider this dramatic testimony. How the gospel came to them and how the gospel changed them. First, let's consider how the gospel came to them. Look again at verses 5 through 7. Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 4. 
For we know, brethren, loved by God, that He has chosen you. It's quite an amazing statement, isn't it? Would you say that to some professing Christian that you know? I know, brother, I know, sister, that you're loved by God and that God has chosen you. You see, Paul's trying to encourage them and strengthen their faith. But how does he know that? How does he have that confidence? He goes on in verses 5-7 through to remind them how the gospel came to them. Look at what he says. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. How did the gospel come to those believers in Thessalonica? Well, first of all, it did come in word, right? It came in word. Not, not word only, and we'll talk about that in a second, but, but it did come first and foremost by the preaching of the word of God. It came by the, the, the announcement, the, 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 the telling forth, the declaration of the message. It came by the words, right? The communication of the words of the gospel itself. Reminds us, as Paul said in Romans chapter 11 and verse 17, how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing And it comes by hearing the Word of God. So there was a faithful declaration, a truthful declaration of the actual words of the Gospel. And it's an important reminder to us, isn't it, that uh, of the work that has been entrusted to us today. Nothing has changed in terms of, of human need Right? And of the way in which humans in their need need to be reconciled to God, made right with God. Uh, what people still need today, 2,000 years later, is the message of the gospel, the word of God. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way for faith to come. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't evolved to, to the point 2,000 years later that, that, that there's some other way or that we're wise enough to get to God on our own. We need the message of the gospel. People need to hear the words, friends. And uh, this is a great challenge to me. It's a great conviction and a reminder to me. I, I think when I when I assess myself as a witness, right, as, as an evangelist, um, I think God has, has put me together in a way that I, I, I enjoy uh, making friendships with people. I enjoy making connections with people in, back in Mebane and, and getting to know people in our community and, and, and building friendships over time. And, and hopefully because of that, there are doors that open for the gospel. But what I recognize and, and where I'm convicted is, I think I could do that forever. I could build bridges forever. I could build relationships forever. But there comes a point in time, isn't there, where I need to have the courage and even risk that friendship that I've worked to build by opening my mouth and saying, friend, you know what? You're a sinner. 
And your greatest need is to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ because he's the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins and justified in God's sight and to have eternal life, you see. At some point, you've got to say the words. How did the gospel come to Thessalonica? It came by a, a declaration, a communication of the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel. And we need confidence in that message, don't we? The way it changed them, it can still change people today. Just the, the, the communication of the gospel. That, that conversion that I referenced at the beginning that I was privileged to witness six months ago, it's, it's amazing because the, the person who was saved had heard the gospel their whole lives, but then it was just someone else, mm-hmm. some other voice, saying, declaring the old, old story that that person had heard his whole life. And it was in the communication of that message that God came. And it was like a light went on, right? And you've, maybe you experienced that. Maybe you've heard testimonies like that. It, it, it really comes down to the simple communication of the truth of the gospel where God comes and he works. And the spirit enlightens, right? Causes the blind to finally see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I am a sinner. And, and I understand now that when Jesus died on the cross, he was like, like a lamb being slain. He was a substitute dying in my place. And, and he took the wrath that my sins deserve. Yes, I see it now. It really is simple in some ways, isn't it? But we have to communicate the message and have confidence in the message and be faithful to it. But, but there was more than that. And that's the point of verse 5. And there always must be more than the simple communication of the message on the human level. Paul says the gospel came not just in word, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power was manifested in both the preacher and the hearer alike. The messenger and the hearer alike. Paul indicates that the power of the Spirit was on him When he says in verse 5, You know what kind of men we became among you for your sake. You see, you can know that the gospel came in Holy Spirit power, Paul is saying, because of what you saw in us. That wasn't a testimony to us in ourselves, to our goodness or our greatness or our spirituality. What you witnessed in us was an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and on our lives. So you can trust the message that was shared with you. But that power was displayed also in many of Paul's hearers. Remember the context. Here's Paul uh, walking into that pagan, large, important city in first century Greece. You know, what expectation would you have? But, but here he comes, Paul and his two companions, and they start preaching the gospel. But it wasn't just men speaking to men and women and young people, right? It was men preaching the Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. And evidence of the Spirit's work is seen in the fact that they receive that word even in great affliction, even in the midst of opposition against the odds, if you will. And we're good at seeing the odds, aren't we? When we just look at people or we look at cities with human eyes, what we tend to see are all the obstacles, all the reasons why 
well, the gospel's not going to prosper here. But against all of that, there was fruit. And they received the word with a joy, even in the midst of affliction, that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Don't you long to see the Spirit accompany the preaching of the gospel in our day like that? Don't you long for that? Don't you desire to see just as the gospel is, is shared on a personal level or preached in a, in a corporate setting that God comes, that the Spirit comes, and that every time the gospel is communicated, somebody is, is brought to faith in Jesus Christ because the Spirit comes. When we speak the gospel to sinners, we need to remember we're like Ezekiel speaking to that valley of dry bones. And whenever we speak the gospel to a sinner, it, it's like saying with Ezekiel, dry bones live. Dry bones hear the word of God. And, and it's important for us to remember that, not so that we would become hopeless and skeptical, because dry bones can't live, right? Dry bones can't hear. Dead people can't hear or see or rightly respond to, to truth. So that's, that's what we're called to do, though. We're called to preach to those dry bones. And the reason we need to remember that is, is so that we would place our hope in the right place. It's not in us. It's in, it's in the message, but the message accompanied by the life-giving Holy Spirit. The word must be preached. The gospel must be clearly presented. But the spirit must come in power. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. Paul preached. The gospel came in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And under the sound of the gospel, amazingly, spiritually dead sinners were awakened. Their blind eyes were opened. Their ears were unstopped. Their minds were illuminated so that they understood the message and their hearts were made new and they believed the gospel by faith. And again, if we're a Christian here this morning, that's what happened to us. You remember that, right? We read it earlier, Ephesians chapter 2. We, we weren't people who happened to be alive and because uh, we were so uh, wise and noble, we saw the truthfulness of this and, and we just believed it. Or good people who just got a little bit better by becoming Christian, embracing Christian. No, we were dead. We were dead. And you he made alive by the Spirit coming to you through the Gospel. As Charles Wesley put it, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee gospel coming in the power of the Holy Spirit and bringing dead sinners to life we must be convinced brethren that people will perish if they don't know Jesus Christ by faith 
But we must also be clear that our confidence in reaching them with the gospel is not our skills or our attractiveness as individuals or even as a a local church. Our methods, our hard work, none of those things provide a basis for confidence in the ministry of the gospel. Now, God uses all those things. But he doesn't need any of them. Our confidence must be in the power of the gospel joined together with the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how sinners are saved. So I exhort you, I encourage you to be a people here at Emmanuel Church that constantly, maybe every time you pray corporately, that's not an unrealistic goal, Every time you pray corporately, pray for the Spirit to be active in the ministry of the Word and in the preaching and in the sharing and in the witness of the Gospel that goes out from this local church. Be enterprising in getting the Word out and do that with confidence that sinners will be saved, but always do it in humble and prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit to make it effective. That's how the gospel came to Thessalonica. And Paul rejoiced because of the way the gospel came to them. Now, secondly, let's observe for a few moments uh, how the gospel changed them. How the gospel changed them. Three things I want to observe from the passage. First, having received the gospel, the gospel went out from them. That's one evidence of the great change that took place in their lives as they became not only believers in the gospel, but the gospel then went out from them. Look again at verse 8. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. It's amazing. Again, we have to think about this in real terms, you know. This was a group of people just like you and me. This isn't some fanciful fiction that we're reading. You gotta think about it in realistic everyday terms. It was people just like you and me. It was families just like the families represented here. It was singles just like the singles here. It was just a group of people living their lives, but then one day the gospel came and it changed them and then all of a sudden in a very short period of time, they became effective witnesses for the gospel. The gospel went out from them to every place. It really is a genuine mark of conversion in these young believers the way the gospel went out from them. They began to proclaim it. They immediately became a missionary church. The content of their message, again, would have been the gospel, but it also included their testimony, as verse 9 indicates. Paul's talking about others who, who receive this testimony. They themselves report concerning what happened to you. Your testimony has gone out. It's become known the way the gospel came to you. So that's the word you see, that spread, in a sense, from mouth to mouth and town to town throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Listen to this. (laughs) Have you heard what happened in Thessalonica? That's what was happening, you see. 
The gospel made such a difference in their lives. They were different people. They were changed, and they let the world know it, and the world heard about it. We need to understand something. It's not the exceptional Christian who has the impulse to tell others about Christ. It's not part of uh, some special call for just pastors or preachers or missionaries to tell others about Christ. It's not part of radical Christianity to evangelize. It's a regular part of radical conversion. The change that, that the gospel makes in our lives that produces an impulse in a new believer. It's, the, it's, it's kind of the evidence of new life in Jesus and of the presence of the Spirit to want to reproduce that life by telling others the good news that has come to us. Maybe you've heard it put this way. It's like beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Right? I've got good news. <laughs> Something amazing has happened to me and, 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 and I want you to know about it. That, that's, that's evidence of new life. Do you remember the testimony of the Gerasene demoniac that Jesus healed? He'd been so radically changed by Christ. I just love that description. That's a description of conversion, right? Here's this person who spiritually is out of their mind, and then they meet Jesus, and then there he is, seated and clothed and in his right mind. Literally, in his case, but spiritually made new. After Jesus transforms him when Jesus is getting ready to leave that demon possessed man who had been healed begs him to, to go with Jesus but what does Jesus say he says I want you to go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you and you know what that's what he did Mark tells us he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. It's the, the impulse, the evidence of new life. What is it that makes that impulse so strong in early days of faith grow weak? Maybe you haven't had that experience. I'll speak for myself. You know, you come to Christ and there's that strong desire to share this amazing thing that's happened to you with, with everybody who will listen. And then over time, I don't know, we, we start to mature. And for some reason, that impulse begins to fade a bit. That desire begins to fade a bit. Remember, brethren, it's not a sign of immaturity to be zealous for evangelism. It's not a sign of... On, on the flip side, it's not a sign of maturity or of doctrinal sophistication to be guarded in our gospel proclamation. Um, that, that, that's not a legitimate outworking of our convictions about the doctrines of grace, for example. To, to be slow and guarded and overly careful in our gospel proclamation. Uh, that's not a legitimate application of Calvinism. That's called hyper-Calvinism. It's part of a genuine work of converting grace that causes us to receive the gospel and then to turn around and want others to know about the grace 
and the mercy and the kindness that God has shown to us. That's what happened in Thessalonica, and Paul mentions it as part of the evidence that made their calling and election sure. So the gospel went out from them, the first evidence of change. Secondly, the gospel gave them a new orientation. The gospel gave them a new orientation. Look again at verses 9 and 10. What a wonderful, concise description of conversion here. Paul says how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The gospel gave them a new orientation. You turned to God to serve and to wait for Jesus. It's not what they were doing before. You know, if you think of conversion as someone who's, who's walking very, very definitively in this direction, down this path, and then the gospel comes and conversion comes, and it's like, you know, a 180, right? And, and all of a sudden, you have a new orientation. You, you, have, you have been turned. Turned to the true and living God. You didn't know him before. You didn't care about him before. You didn't believe in him before. But, but now your whole life is oriented toward him. And, and now where you used to serve yourself and, and, and your lusts and your pleasures and your desires for this life, now you, you're serving him. A radical reorientation. And now you're not just living for this life and, and for time and, and, and space in this life. Now you're thinking about eternity, right? Now you're, you're living this life with a hopeful expectation for what is to come when Jesus comes again. That's what you're looking for. A radical reorientation. I want you to imagine for a moment, I'm trying to, we ought to think about this in real terms. What did it mean for the people of Thessalonica? Imagine for a moment a young 12-year-old girl in the city of Thessalonica. The day of her 13th birthday has arrived, and it's the day in that culture, and I'm, I'm kind of making this up, but hopefully it's not too far from the truth. That's the day in that culture that she will be taken to the temple of her family's goddess to serve as a temple prostitute. Her father comes in the door, that day and she knows that the time has come he gathers the family around him he has something to tell them and he begins to talk about how on his way home that day his friend brought him to hear a man called Paul speak about something called the gospel and he heard about Jesus Christ who was who is the Son of God, the Son of the one true God, who came into the world and became a man so that he could suffer and die as a sacrifice for sins, and he was raised from the dead. He's actually alive now, and God, the one true and living God, offers salvation to sinners like us if we would simply repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, his Son, as the only Savior of sinners. And she listened, 
as her father spoke, the way those words came over him and his heart was convicted of his sins against his maker. And, and, and he, his eyes were opened and he saw the truth about God and about himself and about the man called Jesus Christ. And, and, and for the first time in his life, he understood what life was actually all about. And he spoke about how he, he, he repented and he believed in Christ and something happened to him. And now he wanted all of his family to go and hear Paul speak and, and to believe those things with him. And, and so they're not going to the temple and she's not going to serve as a temple prostitute. They're going to go hear Paul preach the gospel that night. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see that? Don't you long to see that kind of transformation taking place in the lives of men, women, and young people around us? Well, that's what happened. That's what happened in Thessalonica. And it is still happening today. If you travel about 60 miles southwest of Thessalonica, you'd come to a place called Mount Olympus. If you know your Greek mythology, you know that Mount Olympus was regarded to be the home of the gods, the place of Zeus's home. So again, just picture what happened here. In a sense, you could say Paul came into the very shadow of Mount Olympus, the backyard of the gods, a stronghold of satanic pagan idolatry. He came right into enemy territory, and he took captives for King Jesus by the preaching of the gospel. He preached to people whose lives were dominated by false religion. He preached to people, uh, Jews in the synagogue, who were in the grip of self-righteousness. Most were pagan Greeks who knew nothing but pantheism and Greek idolatry and vain human philosophy. That was their worldview. And uh, with that worldview came all the trappings, right? All the carnal, sexual, indulgent lifestyles that accompanied that worldview. But when Paul preached, some of those self-righteous Jews repented and believed in Christ as their only hope. Uh, they, They began to sing that song we sang earlier, right? No good in me. Christ alone, my solid rock. And many of those Greeks believed and lives were changed and they were reoriented by the power of the gospel and they turned from the pantheon of the false gods and put their trust in the one true and living God. It happened. And they began to serve him and they began to wait for his son from heaven their hearts and their minds, their lives and their perspectives were radically reoriented toward God and toward Christ by the effective working of the gospel. How did the gospel change them? The gospel began to go out from them. The gospel gave them a new orientation. Thirdly and finally, let's observe how the gospel gave them new graces. The gospel gave them new graces. Back to verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering you in our prayers and remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. That was new. That was new in them. Faith, hope, and love, these three. 
wherever there's a true work of the gospel and of grace, we should always expect to find the chief of the Christian graces. Faith, hope, and love. And that's what Paul saw in them. Paul knew, he was confident that they were real, that what they experienced was really the power of God because they were productive graces in their lives. They weren't just professing faith, hope, and love. He joins together these words with those, those other words, right? He saw their work of faith and their labor of love and their patience of hope. That was fruit, that was grace bearing fruit in their lives. Their faith was a real trust or confidence in God and in His Christ, and it it was demonstrated by the way it was exercised. In fact, they were called very early to endure hardship, to persevere in faith through opposition and through persecution. But they did. It was a work of faith. Their love was a new kind of love for them. It was no longer Lust. It was no longer a self-centered kind of love. It was God-like, agape love. It was self-sacrificial giving for the good of others like God. It was love that labored on behalf of God and for the good of their fellow men. And their hope now was fixed on a confident expectation that Jesus was coming again. And that hope was real. It was bearing fruit in their lives because it produced in them endurance and perseverance in the midst of suffering. You see, they were enabled to bear those tribulations patiently because they knew that life wasn't just about this life. You see, they were setting their hope on the life to come and on all the good things that would be given to them when Jesus Christ came again. The gospel was fruit bearing in their lives and that fruit was sweet and it was productive and it was evident faith hope and love so that's the testimony the radical testimony the dramatic testimony of the Thessalonian believers to the power of the gospel both to save and to change to transform in a sense you could say in a very short period of time they became a model church They were a pattern of genuine converting grace in the gospel. And they are an encouragement 2,000 years later to us. As we remember the way that the gospel came to them in saving power and we recognize how the gospel has changed us from what we once were. God having begun his good work in us is continuing it until the day of Jesus Christ. The church of the Thessalonians also challenges us to examine ourselves and to get back to the vital basics of what it means to be a Christian. Zeal for the gospel. Service to God. Waiting for Christ expectantly and in hope. Faith, hope, and love active and bearing fruit in our lives. That's really what it's all about, brethren. And we still need change, don't we? We're still works in progress. And it's the ongoing application of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit 
to our hearts and lives that needs to make those changes in us. And the testimony of this church is an encouragement to us. Now, the Thessalonians, their testimony also stands as a lasting monument of the grace of God to sinners. Remember what they were. Think of what God made them to be by His grace. They are a lasting monument of the grace of God to sinners. Friends, the same gospel that saved and changed them 2,000 years ago, that same gospel can save and radically change you and transform your life and take you from where you are now, someone whose life is not oriented at all towards God, You really don't care about God. You don't think about God. When you get up every day, serving Him is not really in your thoughts. The idea that Jesus is coming again is an idea that really never invades your world and your thoughts. The end for you and the eternity that is coming is not something you think. God can meet you right where you are today and He can turn you around 180 degrees and set you in the opposite direction. The same gospel that saved them and changed them can save and change you here this morning. They were not likely converts. I mean, in a sense, there's no such thing as a likely convert, is there? They were not likely converts. They were very far from God. In a sense, you could say about as far as you can get from the true and living God. They were dominated by sin. They were living in absolute darkness. But that all changed in a day. The day that Paul came to Thessalonica and he preached the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, became a man so that he could suffer and die in the place of sinners like you and me. And in his death on the cross, he fully satisfied the wrath of God against all of our sins so that not one ounce of that wrath remains. And Jesus lived a perfect life so that all those who receive him as Savior can be cleansed of all their sins by his blood so that no judgment, no condemnation remains. And, and then we can be given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when we stand before God, we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, the, the clean white robes of Jesus, and God can actually say about people like us, not guilty. And not only not guilty, but righteous. Because that person is joined to my son by faith and through faith in him and union with him have received all the merits of his life and of his death. That's the good news of the gospel. And, and, and the call of the gospel is not jump through a million hoops and you will be saved. It's confess your sins and believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And all those who do that, even those here today who do that, who call on Christ by faith, will experience the same kind of radical transformation that those Thessalonians experienced, that many here, sitting here this morning, experienced by God's grace. And we warmly invite any and all here this morning 
to consider the gospel and to receive what Jesus has done for sinners. We call you to to consider what, what Christ did for the Thessalonians and what he's done for so many of us and what he's done for them and what he's done for us, he will do for you if you receive him today by faith. Well, I hope that this brief reminder of the testimony of the Thessalonian church is of encouragement to you, brethren. God is still saving sinners. And the gospel is the power of God to save and to change those who come to God by faith in Jesus. That's our confidence. That's our hope. May we be faithful to declare that message trusting in the Holy Spirit. May He bless your testimony here. Mm. One of our strongest desires for you is not only that you would come into existence as a church and that you would, that you would make it for a little while as a church. We, we, we long for much more than that for you, but one of our strongest desires is that you would be a soul-winning church. That God would build His church in this place through the witness and the testimony of you as individual believers in your spheres of influence and through your efforts as a church to reach out to this community. And I pray that you might see some of the exciting things that we've been reminded of this morning from Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for your word and just the encouragement that we receive from it. We thank you for uh, the, the record, the, the historical record of what happened in the days of the early church. And Father, please strengthen our faith, encourage our hearts today by the remembrance of these things, to, to be reminded that, that, that the church, even as we know it today, which which exists all over the world. Millions of people have come to know Jesus Christ. It started with one. It started with Jesus. And then with just a small handful of disciples in the Middle East. And from there, the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. Please remind us and encourage us today of the power of the gospel and strengthen our resolve to faithfully declare Christ and to be used of you to win souls for Jesus. Again, thank you for this time together. Pray your blessing on us and on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.